Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack. And in this episode, we are back with our Ask Austin Anything for April. This is our monthly episode where I source questions from all of our listeners, just like you pick a few to answer right here live on the podcast. So if you want me to answer your question in a future episode, all you have to do is go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. That's the letter A three times. Submit your question there and I will pick it and bring it right here on the podcast and give you an answer. So we have a bunch of great questions today. Without further ado, let's jump in. Our first question comes from Yuzoma, who's asking, why is it that phrases we're told to never use in our resumes also show up as the exact phrases in job descriptions? So for example, terms like self-starter or team player or good communicator, why do those show up in job descriptions, but we're told we should never use them in our resumes? So I love this question because it's so true. And it's just kind of funny that this is the situation. But the explanation is pretty straightforward. On the job description side, companies are effectively creating wish lists. And most companies don't do a good job of creating good job descriptions because good job descriptions would be more specific. They wouldn't say that you need to be a self-starter. They would say that you need to be proactive in X, Y, and Z very specific ways in order to be successful in this role. But most companies don't have that level of specificity when they open a new role. That is an unfortunate truth. But on top of that, most companies want the unicorn candidate, and they also have trouble with the idea of excluding candidates. So what they do is they create what's effectively a wish list, and they use these semi-vague terms to attract as much talent as they can, hoping that they get this unicorn candidate. And in reality, that never really works out. When we're vague, when we are general, when we try to you know be everything to everyone, we don't really get the results that we want. And that's why they get this influx of applications, and that's why they needed to create the ATS system and blah, 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 blah. So that's the reason that these terms exist in job descriptions. The reasons we shouldn't use them in resumes is because these terms don't do anything to differentiate us from the competition. Anybody can say that they're a self-starter. Anybody can say that they're a team player. Anybody can say that they're a good communicator on their resume. And if 10 people are all saying that they're a self-starter, how do we know which one is actually the best at self-starting? How do we know what the ranked order is? That's the reason we want to avoid these types of terms because they don't actually illustrate your true tangible value. The employer, the person who might be interviewing you or hiring you can't look at your resume and understand your unique value and compare it and rank you compared to the other candidates who are applying for this role. So instead, what we want to do in our resume is be specific. We want to talk about the specific actions we took. And most importantly, we want to tie that to the outcomes that we drove. So instead of saying that you're a self-starter, you can talk about how you brainstormed, pitched, and executed on this initiative that led to X, Y, and Z results, right? Or instead of saying that you are a team player, you can talk about how you won an award for uh, doing something as a team player, right? Or you can talk about how you faced this challenge and you brought brought a bunch of people together and created a team in order to overcome it. So you want to create these more tangible, real metrics-driven, outcomes-driven examples that illustrate what the term is basically capturing, right? So hopefully that helps explain why there is that discrepancy and what you should do about it. The second question here comes from YouthPotty, who's asking, can you give a detailed example of a value validation project? 
And I certainly can. We also have a couple of other episodes, um, if you scroll back in the feed, where I break down some of these examples. So I'll try to give a different one. Uh, and the reason that I'm choosing this one is because you can use it at effectively every stage in the process. Now, I will say that this value validation project wasn't necessarily created with the express purpose of getting a job. But I really like it because it illustrates a lot of, if not all of, the pluses and upsides of creating a value validation project. So this project was actually created by a student who was going through a boot camp at General Assembly. This was a data science boot camp. And at the end of those boot camps, students have to create what's called a capstone project, which is basically a project that they brainstorm, they come up with on their own that allows them to put their skills to good use. So what this specific student did was they went out and they scraped data from Twitter. They scraped publicly available tweet data, and they used that tweet data to determine this the brand sentiment for airlines. So put another way, they used tweets to understand how positive or negative the sentiment was about certain airlines. So this was really cool. They created a whole slide deck that broke this down and they walked through every step. So first they talked about where they sourced the data from. So where did they get this Twitter data? How did they get it? How did they source it? How did they analyze it? Next, they talked about how they were going to process that data in a way that was going to allow them to analyze it for you know the sentiment that it had. Then they talked about picking specific airlines and why they chose those airlines. Then they walk through a bit more of these steps in detail. And then at the end, they have the results. And shocker, the sentiment was very negative for all of the airlines. But the reason that I like this setup is because you can use this at every stage in the process. So at the very beginning, just by creating this VVP, even before you actually apply to these companies or before you reach out and network with people, if you create a project like that and you turn it into a case study that's hosted on your personal website that you can share in your LinkedIn featured section, this is a very clear illustration of your value. But in addition to that, because of the way that this is set up, we can swap companies in and out. So if this person was targeting airlines as a place that he wanted to get jobs, Awesome. You have brand sentiment for four airlines. You did this whole project for airlines. You're good to go. But if let's say that they had a change of heart and wanted to focus instead on tech companies, well, you can easily just swap in the Twitter handles of the tech companies and get the same data and the project would get you the same outcomes. So this is a beautiful setup because it's applicable to almost any company or any industry that this person wanted to target. And that makes it really, really scalable. So I do like that aspect of it as well. And then if this person went ahead and got the actual interview at the company, what they could do is they could take this VVP and condense it down. The whole thing that they created, the project that they created up front, that thing was long, right? It walked through the entire process from beginning to end. It walked through their hypothesizing around, you know, how to come up with this data and what to do with it. It walked through the steps they took, the frameworks and tools that they used, all that good stuff, as well as the results. Now, if they had a specific interview with a specific team at a specific company, they could shrink all that down to, let's say, five, six slides, and then they could take the, the data that they already had and bring it right into that interview in a condensed fashion that's directly aligned to what the company cares about here. So they could show up and they could say, you know, hey... I know that your biggest challenge for this role is understanding, you know, the sentiment. That's what we're looking for here. We're looking to get deeper insights on our customers and what they think about our brand. Well, I actually went and ran the sentiment analysis. 
spoiler alert, here's what your customers are saying right now on Twitter. Here's how we could expand this across to other social media platforms. And here's how we would take that data and then use it to enact a plan to increase uh, the sentiment or the positive sentiment that, that we're looking for here. So this is a great strategy that works throughout because at the very beginning, by having a couple of these case study type projects, especially if you're changing careers, you have a really tangible illustration of your value that anybody can see that you can put on your resume. And then once you land the interviews, you can condense it down and tweak it for that specific team, for that specific role, and you can bring that to the table. And now all of a sudden people can see one, that you're super creative and willing to go above and beyond, but your exact thought process when it comes to understanding the challenges that this company is facing and helping them overcome it as well. So that is a bit of a different uh, style of VVP that spans uh, essentially the full length and scope of the job search process. But you can also have more tactical and targeted VVPs that happen after you get interviews. And I've shared a bunch of those on our site, cultivatedculture.com forward slash value, as well as in past episodes as well. So you can check those out if you're interested. Our third question comes from Thomas, who's asking, what would you say are the most important skills to work on in order to master a powerful brand? So I think you really need three things in order to have a really powerful brand. The first is that you actually need to have experience under your belt. Every single person that I know, creator that I know who has a really powerful brand, let's call it a six-figure audience, all of those people have real-world experience in the thing that they're talking about. So you'll see a lot of creators out there who are sort of, I guess you could call it shortcutting it with the type of content they create. So maybe their content is screenshots of other people's content. We see that a lot on, on LinkedIn these days and elsewhere. Or maybe their content is, you know, memes or, or stuff like that. Or maybe their content is just really generic. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's easy ways to go out and, and somebody could just create content that's all about, you know, the how bad employers are, right? And, and that resonates with folks. You know, if we post about how employers have seven rounds of interviews, but only give us 24 hours to reply. And, and I actually, you know, ha have written a post like that. But people can come and just have, you know, these kind of emotionally charged posts and build a following around that. But truly, people with powerful brands, because most of the folks that I just mentioned before, those brands aren't really deep. They're sort of high visibility, but pretty shallow because there isn't a deeper connection with the creator. Whereas somebody who has an audience that is deeply connected to them, the first thing that they have is really unique experience in the space that they're talking about. So you need to get out there and you need to build that. And the second thing that you need is great copywriting skills. That is the key when it comes to creating a powerful brand. And it doesn't matter if you're building it on social or via SEO on a website or on a podcast. If it's a podcast or a video or something, you can swap copywriting for um, speaking. But essentially, the principles are the same because essentially what we're trying to do here is through whatever mode of communication we're using, whether it's writing or whether it's speaking, what we're doing is trying to choose our words, choose our language in a way that entices our audience to take specific actions, right? So for example, if you're writing a hook for a LinkedIn post, or if you're speaking a hook for a YouTube video, we want that hook to be enticing enough to get the person to stop scrolling or stop what they're doing and want to read the rest of the post and want to listen to the rest of the video or the podcast. So copywriting is so huge here. And that's the biggest thing that I see people missing is they start on this creation journey and their copywriting just isn't there. They may have great value, they may have great thoughts, but they don't know the right way to 
share them and distribute them in a way that's actually going to entice people to engage. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is your network. I know people say this time and again, your network is your net worth, but truly in the creator space, if you want to be successful and if you want to build a big brand, you need to have other people who are helping amplify your brand and people who are acting as a sounding board. So I don't know a single creator or a single person who has, again, that that six-figure type brand who does not have a board of advisors, if you will, or a group of of trusted um, colleagues that they're bouncing ideas off of and who are supporting one another as well. So those are the big three things that I would say that you need if you want to master a powerful brand. Our next question comes from Mick here, who is referencing a couple of recent posts, which I really love. And they're saying, I'm looking to establish a clear workflow for myself. And I wonder about combining two of your tips. In an older podcast episode about reaching out via email, you talk about sending two to three follow-ups, maybe five to seven business days after the initial outreach. And then in another more recent episode, we talk about the 10 idea strategy, which is basically where you look at a contact and you come up with 10 different ways that you are going to add value to them. And then once you have that engagement plan, you start reaching out to your target. So how do we combine these uh, two strategies and make them work? So I would definitely start with the 10 idea strategy here, because that is what's going to allow you to prioritize and rank the actions that you take. When we talk about reaching out via email or LinkedIn, that may not always be the most effective strategy, right? You know, for example, if we have a contact who is super active on Twitter, it may be better for us to engage with their Twitter content for a week, two weeks, and then try to DM them and then try to email them. Whereas if we just went for the email first, we may not be taking the best path forward. So I'd always recommend starting with the 10 idea strategy, research them, look at their background, look at their interests, and then come up with 10 different ways that you could add value to them and prioritize them based on the ease of of getting in touch with them or the chances of getting in touch with them rather. And then what you can do after that is start implementing our process here. So we want to invest the most follow-ups in the strategies that we believe have the highest chance of success. So with that, you know, first priority strategy or first rank strategy, I would recommend going through this follow-up process, but I would also consider how strategies differ from one another. So if two strategies require emailing somebody, we may want to wait on those. But if one strategy is to send an email to this person with X, Y, and Z pitch, and another strategy is to engage with their content on LinkedIn, you can do both of those at the same time. You don't have to wait because neither of those are conflicting. You know, if you're chatting with somebody on LinkedIn, if you're responding to their comments and you send them an email, both of those things can happen concurrently and that's natural. So I would also think about, you know, whether or not you can do a couple of these things concurrently. And then from there, you know, let's say that that those were our our top two strategies were engage with them on LinkedIn and send them this specific email pitch. Well, five to seven days after you sent them the email pitch, now you can follow up on the email and the whole time you've still been engaging with them on LinkedIn, right? So that's a way that this can happen concurrently. But if both of your options, let's say you had two different pitches that were happening via email, um, if they're happening in the same channel, then you do need to space things out a little bit. Or you could try to use a different medium, right? So let's say pitch one goes via email. And then instead of waiting and going through all the follow-ups before you send pitch two, if you haven't heard back after, let's say a week, try to send pitch two via another medium, like a LinkedIn message or a social media DM or something else, just so we're expanding the the surface area that we're using to approach this person. And we're giving ourselves more options right at the very beginning. And we're not having to wait to extend this. 
So Mick, I hope that helps give you a little bit of, of clarity there. Appreciate you asking that and appreciate you uh, following the strategy so closely. I love to see that. Our last question comes from Nadia, who's asking, how do you do everything and still get sleep? So a lot of people do ask this question. Uh, I got it more when I was working full time, which uh, totally makes sense. But um, I'm really glad Nadia asked this because first and foremost, I think that sleep is the number one thing that we can prioritize. I think it's the basis for everything else, right? You can't really be healthy. You can't be optimally productive. You can't be happy. You can't be moving forward and being successful in pretty much anything you want to do unless you are rested. It's really, really hard to do that if you're not getting the right amount of sleep. So that's actually the thing that I prioritize most. And my wife and I are typically in bed usually at about 9, 9.30. Uh, so sometimes it's earlier if we've had a little little bit of a crazy day with the kids and work and stuff. And then we, we wake up at, a, at about six. So we actually get a lot of sleep. And the way that I'm able to get everything else done in between is that I'm really intentional with my time. So a couple of strategies that I use. First, I started saying no to basically anything that isn't hell yes. And this has sort of become a cliched strategy, uh, but it's cliched for a reason. It, it actually works. And what I realized going through a lot of my career and especially starting a business, because when you're starting a business, you want to say yes to everything because you never know what opportunity you know might blow things up. We say yes to so much. We give so much of our time away to others that we don't really have any time for ourselves. So I've actually started saying no to a lot more stuff. It's sort of become my default. And I only say yes to something if it really, truly is an amazing opportunity that I am genuinely excited about. And that right there has cleared, cleared up a lot of free time for me. The second thing that I do is I create systems for everything. So when I do something, I, I go through it, you know, a couple of times, I get a couple of reps and I look to see uh, what's working well and where the hiccups are, where the bottlenecks are. And then I try to create a system around it. And then once I have that system, I either try to de delegate it or automate it. So I'll pass that off to a virtual assistant or I will try to automate it using tools or tech. And I do that for pretty much everything in my life, you know, everything from shopping for groceries to uh, repurposing LinkedIn contents, everything else. Because when you have a system, it just makes things a lot easier. You don't really have to think about it. And you have that option to delegate and automate. And then the third thing is just auditing my time. So this is probably the biggest and easiest thing that most people can do, but you just need a journal or a, a Google Doc or some sort of tracker where you track where you spend your time for a whole week. And it's everything from when you wake up to when you eat to when you work out to when you do specific tasks at work. So not just worked from nine to five, but how did you specifically spend that time at work? How is each hour or half hour broken down? It is kind of intensive for a week, but then at the end, you can look back and you, you can actually see the difference between where your brain is telling you you're spending your time and where you're actually spending your time. And I tend to find when I do that, I'm always able to free up, you know, four or five, six hours in the week, if not more. And so I like to do that on a quarterly basis, just a reset and make sure that I am sticking to a schedule that is, you know, aligned with what where I'm looking to go and not getting sucked into different projects and into the weeds and things that are taking me away from the core, you know, 20% of actions that are driving 80% of the results. So hopefully those three strategies give you something to work with Nadia. Thank you for that question. And that does it for our Ask Austin Anything episode this week. So thank you all for tuning in, for listening. If you have a question that you want me to answer on a future episode, all you have to do is go to cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. That's the letter A three times. You can just submit your question there. I review them every month and I pick a couple to answer here on this podcast. So feel free to ask there. But outside of that, I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and I will see you in the next episode of the podcast. 